Chapter 9, Part 2 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Marine Air Support Advance of RCT-1 to Sosa Preliminary planning for the crossing of the River Han began as soon as the division staff settled down in the new CP. The reshuffling of various units had to wait, however, until both Marine regiments took their assigned objectives of 18 and 19 September. Throughout the 17th, while Murray's regiment drove northeastward toward Kimpo, the 1st Marines had continued the attack from Ascom City along the Incheon Seoul Highway. As mentioned previously, Monaghan's rocket launcher and the 75mm recoilless rifles, emplaced in 2-1's positions on Hill 186, helped smash the North Korean tank infantry column at dawn. It appeared that a second enemy force was supposed to have closed on marine lines by taking a parallel course through the hills south of the highway. The Red Infantry, in about company strength, was spotted moving along the high ground toward Company D's front on Hill 186. Fox Company dispersed the column with mortar fire and then notified Dog to be on the alert. Though the North Koreans were stopped cold, they did not flee with the usual rapidity. Their base of operations seemed to be Hill 208, a landmass that began near Mahangri on the highway and spread southward across most of the 2nd Battalion front. Lieutenant Colonel Sutter's attack plan committed Easy Company on the left of the road, Fox on the right, and dog in the high ground to the south. No sooner had the companies jumped off than they became involved in scattered, stubborn fighting with red soldiers on and around Hill 208. Howitzers of the 11th Marines raked the high ground ahead of the attackers, and Sutter's troops measured off slow but steady progress. In the low ground bordering the highway, enemy troops had taken cover in the fields on both sides of a roadblock about 500 yards from Mahangri. 2nd Lieutenant Robert C. Hanlon's 2nd Platoon of Easy Company was pinned down by fire from three sides. 2nd Lieutenants Johnny L. Carter and George E. McAlee started forward with reinforcements, but McAlee was wounded by several bullets. After summoning a corpsman, Carter got through to Hanlon and they called for 3.5-inch rockets and 75-millimeter recoilless fire on huts sheltering enemy soldiers. The two officers then led an advance which took the platoon to a small hill on the right of the roadblock where the other two platoons moved up abreast. About 20 NKPA troops were estimated to have been killed. At noon, companies F and D had secured Hill 208 overlooking the FBHL, but it remained for E to break into Mahangri on the highway. By this time, 3-1 had entered the fight with an armored column. Company G, led by 1st Lieutenant Robert L. Gover's 1st Platoon of Baker Company tanks, punched down the road in an attempt to pierce the screen of red resistance with the rest of 3-1 in column close behind. The M26 crew spotted an 85mm gun protruding from a thatched hut and destroyed the camouflage T-34 before it could fire a shot. An infantry platoon riding the Marine tanks was forced to dismount at Mahangri and deploy, while the armor fired from the road at numerous targets of opportunity. The village was finally secured shortly before 1600, 
and small bands of enemy were seen darting eastward to take up new positions along the highway. The advance to Mahangri and the FBHL had carried the 1st Marines 3,000 yards from its starting point at ASCOM City. As the attack continued late in the afternoon, the next objective was Corps Phase Line CC, whose boundaries were defined in the previous chapter. Midway between Mahangri and the Phase Line was the town of Sosa, and it was from this locale that North Korean soldiers were pouring westward to delay the Marine advance on the highway. Since the 5th Marines had veered to the northeast to attack Kimpo, its boundary with the 1st had moved well to the left of the highway. Henceforth, Puller's regiment would have to go it alone on the main road. This was the case as the 2nd and 3rd Battalions butted against enemy delaying forces between Ascom City and Mahangri, and the isolation became more pronounced as they attacked towards Sosa late on the 17th. Sutter's unit advanced on the left of the highway with companies E and F in assault. George Company of 3-1, transported in LVTs and followed by the rest of the battalion, moved along the road behind the 2nd Platoon, Baker Company tanks. There is a defile halfway between Mahangri and Sosa, and at this spot the North Koreans chose to make a determined stand. 2nd Lieutenant Brian J. Cummings nosed his lead M26 into the pass, while infantry moved to the shoulders on either side against light opposition. Suddenly the troops and lone tank were hit from the front by a heavy volume of small arms, anti-tank, and mortar fire. The Marine infantry was thrown back by the intensity of the outburst, the most severe they had yet encountered. As luck would have it, the engine of Cummings' tank went dead at this inappropriate moment, and the big vehicle stalled. Remembering that infantry had been riding on top of his M26, the platoon leader opened the hatch to make a quick check. He yanked a lone rifleman inside and buttoned up just as red soldiers scrambled down the embankment. Fumes from the 90mm gun choked the marines in the vehicle as they listened to the clamor of North Koreans on the hull. The infantrymen who had been pulled to safety by Cummins suddenly went berserk and had to be knocked out. Then the officer was forced to choose between two evils. Either his crew must succumb to the acrid fumes or take its chances on opening the pistol port for ventilation. He opened the port. A grenade bounced inside, and the ear-shattering explosion within the steel enclosure wounded Cummins, the rifleman, and one of the tank gunners. At this moment, the semi-conscious Marines resigned themselves to the worst. Help was on the way, however, and it was time to the split second. Just as the grenade exploded, Sergeant Marion C. Altair's M26 moved to the mouth of the defile and scratched the back of the beleaguered vehicle with bomb machine gun fire. Riddled red soldiers were swept from the top of Cummins' tank and piled up alongside. Within a few minutes, a VMF-214 flight appeared over the pass, and the planes peeled off to bomb, rocket, and strafe the high ground. As the tide of battle swept past, Cummins and his men opened the hatch, coughing and choking, and drank in long breaths of fresh air. It took them a moment to realize that they were back again in the land of the living after one of the closest calls that Marines have ever experienced. Company G of 3-1 fought back on the right of the MSR and gained the high ground above the pass. Simultaneously, Staff Sergeant Arthur J. McDonald led the second section of Cummings' tank platoon into the defile 
and the M26s laid down heavy 90mm and machine gun fire on the crescent of North Korean emplacements ahead. A total of six enemy AT guns was destroyed, but not before the weapons had knocked a track off Cummins' vehicle and damaged two others to a lesser extent. The 2nd Battalion drove to the top of the high ground on the left of the road, and the Marines enjoyed a small-scale turkey shoot as the North Koreans pulled out and pelted towards Sosa. While the assault units consolidated their holdings, the remainder of the 2nd and 3rd Battalions moved into the area around the defile and dug in for the night. The 1st Marines' attack along the highway had netted 4,800 yards. Despite repeated clashes in the course of the day, 2-1 lost only 1 killed and 28 wounded, and Company G of the 3rd Battalion suffered 6 WIA. Enemy losses included 250 killed and wounded, 70 prisoners, 1 T-34 tank, several AT guns, and large quantities of small arms and ammunition. Action on the division's southern flank involved little more than hill climbing and foot races for the 1st Battalion 1st Marines and the Division Reconnaissance Company. After jumping off in the morning of D plus 2, Lt. Col. Hawkins' infantry fanned out through a maze of twisting valleys and ridges. The battalion encountered only light resistance, which invariably evaporated under pressure, and by dark the assault elements had gained 4,000 yards. Hawkins then deployed his troops for night defense on the high ground south of 3-1's positions overlooking the highway defile. On the right of the 1st Battalion, Captain Houghton's reconnaissance company reached the tip of the Namdong Peninsula. The recon troops spent two days, the 17th and 18th, patrolling this spacious tactical vacuum. A number of dispirited prisoners were collected and caches of arms and munitions uncovered. One of the more significant discoveries was a small arsenal in which Russian-type wooden box mines were being manufactured and stored in quantity. First encountered by Able Company engineers in the Pusan perimeter, these crude but effective explosives would become serious obstacles to the Marines' advance in the days ahead. The night of 17 to 18 September passed quietly for the 1st Marines. During the hours of darkness, Ridge requested intermittent naval gunfire to interdict Sosa and Hill 123, where he believed enemy defenses to be located. Jump-off fires were also planned for the morning in addition to airstrikes. Captain P.W. Brock's HMS Kenya poured in more than 306-inch rounds with good results. Our Royal Navy ally not only supported the battalion to the maximum of its naval gunfire desires, said Ridge, but volunteered to render more than was requested. Shortly after first light on D plus 3, the 2nd Battalion attacked along the highway with Easy Company on the left of the road and Dog on the right. Premature air bursts from an artillery preparation resulted in two KIA and three WIA among the troops of Company E. Ridge's 3rd Battalion boarded a column of LVTs, DUKWs, and Jeeps, then rumbled down the highway through 2-1's assault companies. In striking contrast to the previous day's advance, there was a conspicuous absence of NKPA infantry along the way. The Marines brushed aside light opposition, including an anti-tank roadblock at Sosa's outskirts, and captured the town at noon. Covered by Baker Company tanks, 2-1 moved into defensive positions on the right side of the railroad about a mile beyond the built-up area, and the 3rd Battalion deployed on Hill 123 just across the tracks.
On the division's right, 1-1 gained another 4,000 yards in the course of 18 September. In its third consecutive day of attack, the battalion had yet to encounter anything more formidable than steep hills and vapid enemy bands. Hawkins built his night defenses along a mountainous two-mile front south of 2-1's position overlooking the highway. Reports of Enemy Buildup There was little activity in the 5th Marine zone of action during the 1st Regiment's drive on Sosa. After helping 2-5 smash the Don Connor attack at Kimpo, Company C, 1st Battalion, attacked Objective Fox under cover of an artillery preparation. Lieutenant Peterson's unit seized the high ground against light opposition at 0930, while the remainder of 1-5 remained entrenched at Objective Easy, captured the previous day. Murray's CP displaced to Kimpo at 1245 on the 18th, and the regiment spent the rest of the day patrolling from its positions which ringed the airfield. On the 5th Marine's left, the 3rd Battalion of the KMC was joined by 1 KMC in searching out the base of the Kumpo Peninsula. A new security force was added to the division sector when the 17th Rock Regiment landed at Inchon and fanned out to comb the troublesome area between Ascom City and the sea. The general situation map gives the disposition of friendly and suspected enemy elements as of late afternoon on 18 September. This date is particularly important in that the Marine Division, Regimental, and Battalion Headquarters were swamped by a torrent of intelligence which indicated for the first time the future patterns of organized NKPA resistance. Beginning on the left of the broad arc of the 1st Marine Division's front, repeated reports told of enemy concentrations north and south of the Han River in the area of the Kumpo Peninsula. Upwards of 1,000 troops were sighted by natives and air observers, and it was believed that the North Koreans were organizing for an attempt against Kimpo. A strike by four Navy Sky Raiders caught part of the Red Force exposed on both banks of the Han northeast of the airfield. After killing an estimated 50 of the enemy and dispersing the remainder, the Navy pilots reported the area still active. Marine Air, in turn, warned of a buildup of Communist troops and equipment in the vicinity of Huangju and Hill 125, directly across the Han from 25's position north of Kimpo. East of the airfield, the enemy was withdrawing from the 5th Marine Zone toward Yongdungpo, using the Hill 118 area as an intermediate rallying point. Moreover, interrogation of two NKPA officers captured near Kimpo disclosed that a communist regiment was already committed to the defense of Yongdungpo. Since this large industrial suburb of Seoul rambled across the 1st Marine's path to the Han, Colonel Polar knew well in advance that trouble lay ahead of his regiment. Further evidence that storm clouds were gathering over the highway came from a number of sources in Sosa. Informants were almost unanimous in their predictions that the approaches to Yungdunkpo would be sown liberally with landmines. VMF 214, which provided effective close air support for the 1st Marines' attack through Sosa, reported destroying huge enemy stockpiles hidden in and around buildings on the sand spit between Yongdungpo and Seoul. The squadron also sighted six enemy tanks far beyond marine lines and killed two of them with direct napalm hits. Its sister unit, VMF-323, likewise scoured the division front and radioed similar findings to tactical air control. 
Other reports from scattered sources placed approximately 3,000 North Koreans in Seoul, with more on the way. Air spotters noted heavy traffic south from the 38th parallel and north from the Suwon area. Tanks, troops, and vehicles from the latter not only were headed for the capital, but also were veering off toward Yongdungpo in the division right flank. Thus, the Marines faced the possibility of major interference from 1. the Kumpo Peninsula, 2. the Hwangju locale on the north bank of the Han, 3. the area around Hill 118 between Kimpo Airfield and Yongdungpo, 4. Yongdungpo itself, 5. Seoul, and 6. the direction of the division's right, southeastern flank. Strangely enough for an enemy who was at his best with the artful dodge, only the two flank threats failed to measure up to expectations. The North Koreans gave a preview of the changing picture on the afternoon of 18 September when, at 14.15, the first shells of a sustained mortar barrage crashed into 3-1's position on Hill 123. During the next hour, 120mm eruptions traced accurate paths back and forth along the ridge, and 30 Marines were cut down by the whirring fragments. Moving through the explosions with near-miraculous immunity, the 3rd Battalion's senior medical officer, Lt. Robert J. Fleischhaker, Medical Corps, U.S. Navy, remained fully exposed to the barrage while administering to the wounded. He never thought of his own safety when men needed his services, commented Lt. Col. Ridge. South of the highway, enemy gunners ranged in on 2-1's lines at 1800, adding 14 more Marines to the casualty rolls. Lt. Col. Sutter and his S-3, Captain Gildo S. Cotaspati, narrowly escaped injury when two mortar rounds hit the battalion CP. The explosions wounded Captain Albert L. Williams, commander of Company E, and Warren Officer Bartley D. Kent, the battalion supply officer. Orders for Crossing the Han Late in the afternoon on the 18th, both Corps and Division issued orders within a period of two hours for crossing the Han. In Operation Order 6-50, the Commanding General of the 1st Marine Division directed RCT-5 to seize crossing sites along the south bank the next day and be prepared to cross on order while RCT-1 continued its attack along the highway toward Yongdungpo. Much more territory was taken in by 10 Corps Operational Instructions No. 1, which ordered the 1st Marine Division to reconnoiter the river on the 19th and cross the next day. Then, after enveloping enemy positions on the north bank in the vicinity of Seoul, the Marines were to seize and secure both the city and the high ground to the north. Since the Corps did not concern itself much with ways and means, General Smith asked for a conference at 0930 the next morning with General Almond. He informed the 10 Corps commander that he and his staff had already given considerable thought to the question of a crossing site. A preliminary Marine study had disclosed that three abandoned ferry crossings met military requirements, one downstream from Kimpo Airfield, one at Yongdungpo in the zone of the 1st Marines, and one opposite Kimpo near the village of Huangju. The first was too far from Seoul and the second too near, but the Huangju site seemed to satisfy all conditions, subject to General Craig's verification by helicopter reconnaissance. Next to be discussed was the problem of bridging material. 
The 10 Corps Engineer Officer, Lieutenant Colonel Edward L. Rowney, reported that Corps had no material other than that brought by the 1st Engineer Battalion of the Marines. Fortunately, that unit's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Partridge, was prepared to meet the emergency. Although he did not have enough floating bridge material to span such a wide stream, he reported to General Smith that he could have one 50-ton raft in operation to support the assault of troops crossing in LVTs and another shortly afterwards. These rafts would take the tanks and vehicles across, and Partridge added that later his engineers might be able to put together an actual bridge by combining floating and bailey components. The two Marine regiments had been in effect the infantry of Ten Corps up to this time. But Allman promised the Marine General that the 32nd Infantry of the 7th Infantry Division would be moved up on the right flank of RCT-1. This Army unit, it may be recalled, had made an administrative landing at Inchon on the 18th and gone into an assembly area under 1st Marine Division control. The other two regiments of the 7th Division were the 31st Infantry, due to arrive on the 20th, and the 17th Infantry, still attached to the 8th Army. The 10 Corps commander lost no time at ordering the 32nd to move up on the right after reverting to the control of the 7th Division to relieve the 1st Battalion 1st Marines. This was the first of a series of maneuvers carried out on the 19th in preparation for the river crossing. On the left, the 2nd Battalion of the KMCs advanced against negligible opposition to occupy the high ground south of the Han and provide flank protection for the crossing. A more intricate maneuver was carried out when 1st Battalion of the 5th Marines was relieved west of Yongdungpo by its opposite of RCT-1, which had side-slipped to the left after the 32nd Infantry moved up in protection of the regiment's right flank. This shift was not accomplished without some fighting, the account of which belongs in a forthcoming chapter dealing with the battle for Yongdungpo. Another preliminary step was taken on the 19th when the 1st Amphibian Tractor Battalion was relieved of its mission of supporting the 1st Marines. All LVTs were withdrawn as the unit displaced by motor march to the vicinity of Kimpo Airfield, a distance of about 18 miles. The 1st Shore Party Battalion was also concerned in planning for the river crossing. On the 19th, this unit reverted to division control and displaced to the vicinity of Oyosuri. Meanwhile, a reconnaissance detail reported to the CP of the 5th Marines with a mission of selecting DUKW, LVT, and ferry sites. The Shore Party Battalion was also to have the responsibility of establishing evacuation stations and supply dumps on both sides after the crossing while exerting LVT and DUKW traffic control. Except for the 1st Battalion, the 5th Marines had no trouble on the 19th while advancing to its assigned positions on the south bank of the Han. All objectives were occupied against little or no opposition, placing the regiment in position for the crossing. End of chapter 9, part 2, read by Aaron Bennett.